we are continuing our look at the New Testament, um, which means we get to look at books that we may not oftentimes look at. So today we're going to look at, at Titus. I'm not sure if I've ever preached on Titus, at least not here. And, uh, and so, uh, so I'm excited about that. Titus is uh, kind of like, uh, like Timothy last week. This is someone that Paul has ministered alongside and is kind of being a mentor to. And so, and so Paul is writing this letter to Titus to encourage him uh, as he continues to lead the church. He's on an island called Crete. Uh, and that's where Titus is, and that's where the church is beginning to grow. And so with that in mind, uh, let's hear these words. This is what Paul says to Titus. He says, remind them, being the church there in Crete, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show everyone courtesy, or to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit." And the Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone, but avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions, since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, on this beautiful uh, autumnal day, we come giving you praise. We take this space, Lord, now, and we commit it to you. We pray, Lord, that you would still quiet any distractions that may be in our minds, in our thoughts about the week previous or the week to come. That we might simply rest in you. That we might hear you and you alone. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Bless you. So last week... Last week we talked about 1 Timothy 6, as you may recall, and we focused at the end on verse 19. In verse 19, as I was alluding to earlier, it said that we need to take hold of life that really is life, right? This is the life that really matters, life that is actually important. And as, as Paul kind of said last week, it's easy if we're just passive about how we are living our life, it is, it is really easy to live life that is kind of pseudo-life, life that is sub-life, a life that is life 
light, not life that is actually giving, right? Life that is introducing people to Jesus, life that is spreading grace, life that is cultivating relationships, life that is loving one's neighbor and one's enemy, life that is giving food to the hungry, that is giving shelter to the homeless. This is the kind of life that we have to be actively pursuing. It won't just kind of happen, but rather we must be active. So last week, of course, uh, we talked about the love of money and how the love of money can easily become a distraction that keeps us then from really focusing on generous life, life that is really life, kingdom-centered gospel life. And one of the things that Paul does, as you notice throughout uh, the epistles, as he's talking to especially your Timothy or to Titus, is that he really wants us to be active in making sure that we are not distracted by so many things. One of the things then, uh, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a, of a quote that I think I used before sabbatical. I didn't even go back to look at it because it didn't matter. I was going to use it again anyways. And this is from John Ortberg. And he says this. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Let me read that last sentence one more time, that we will just skim our lives instead of actually living them, or to use our terminology that we're using right now, that we will choose, if we are not, if we are not careful to not be distracted, to not choose life that really is life. We will just skim over it. And at some point, then we will look back and we will begin to wonder what difference we have been making and whether or not we've really been living for life that really is life. So when Paul saw that with 1 Timothy, as he said in 1 Timothy, he said, okay, be wary of the way that money and the love of it can begin to seep into your life and cause you to simply skim over life rather than really living deeply into it. And this week, he's going back to it when it comes to Titus. And so what, is, what does he say in Titus? What does he say? How should you be careful to not be distracted? And he says this in the very first verse. The first thing he comes up with is he reminds the church that they are to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to those in government. So what does that mean? Well, I want to be clear. I don't think that means that we should always, in all cases, obey our rulers and our authorities. I mean, clearly, we see in Scripture there are times when uh, the people who follow God are not called to do that, right? So we see in Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe you learned this as a child. And, and Daniel refused to not pray. He refused to worship the king rather than worshiping God. And, and that seemed like a good thing, right? So obviously we shouldn't do that. In fact, there are those who would suggest, most biblical scholars, that this letter written to Titus came out before the Roman Empire had begun mandating that we worship the emperor rather than worshiping God. So clearly in that kind of situation, uh, we should probably not abide by our authorities or by our rulers. That said, one of the things that Paul seems to be concerned about here is that far too often followers of Jesus were being consumed by their thoughts on government and who is in power. And what he was concerned about is if you begin to be so consumed by whoever the human rulers are that you will begin to be distracted from living the life that is really life. 
Now, one of the things that you it may be helpful to know is that Cretans, uh, um, which is a great name, I guess, which is the people who live on Crete, uh, to whom this letter was written, they were notorious for being rebellious. They were always wanting to rebel against the Roman Empire. And so Paul is saying, if you continue to be focused on who is ruling you, then you will inevitably begin to worship and be consumed by that, and you will lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that say to us today? Let me make sure I read my notes exactly so I don't get in too much trouble. Here's what it says. It says. It doesn't say exactly here are the times when you should disobey or here are the times when you should not. But it does seem to me that one of the ways we might be able to begin to discern for ourselves whether or not we are becoming too consumed with who is leading is when we begin to ask ourselves where is our anxiety level and where is our, where is our peace found and when do we get fearful and overly fearful because it seems to me that a part of what Paul might be saying here is in those times when you notice when you are so focused on Donald rather than the divine, super quiet, or when you find yourself focused on Joe instead of Jesus, and you begin to think that your peace should come from whoever is there, and you notice that whenever whoever is there, you either it starts to fluster you and you get overly anxious or you get overly excited that there is a good chance that you might have become distracted from the good news of the gospel, from the focus of the gospel. I'll stop there. So the concern here, it seems to me, is not that certainly God uses those in government. To be sure, we see that in Scripture as well. But what each of us has to do, and I can't do it for you, and nobody else can do it for you, is, is for each of us, though, have to be discerning. Are we too concerned about who the president is and not concerned enough about who the prince of peace is? Because as soon as that begins to happen, then you are dangerously being tempted to be focused less on the good news of Jesus Christ and more on simply whomever it is that is in the White House or in Congress. So we easily become distracted by power. That's what it comes down to. We're easily distracted by the love of money, and we are easily distracted by power. So Paul says, don't do that, but that's not where he stops. Paul then goes on. He says, okay, well, here's what else you become too easily distracted by. He says, stay away, in verse 9, from mindless and pointless quarreling over genealogies and fine print in the law code. Those kinds of things get you nowhere. Those kind of arguments are unprofitable. They are worthless. Now, that's something, my guess, is that almost all of us agree with in theory. It is really easy for us to see fellow Christian brothers and sisters who are arguing over things that we consider to be silly, and we think, well, that's just foolhardy. Why in the world are you arguing over that? That's just dumb. But what, what I've also noticed is that it's really hard for any of us who believe in something really passionately or strongly to ever imagine that this isn't super important. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, one of the things I've noticed in my own life is if I really think something is important and nobody else seems to care, it makes me feel even stronger that this is important. I almost dig my heels in and say, oh no, this is really important. The fact that you guys are sleeping, I am going to rescue you. So how do we know 
whether or not what we are concerned about is worth kind of all of this energy, worth all of this argument. Well, again, Paul doesn't give us a matrix. He doesn't say, hey, if you're really angry about the carpet, then you shouldn't quarrel over that. But if you're mad uh, about, uh, about the ceiling, well, that you should worry about. He doesn't give us any kind of matrix like that. Rather, one of the things that we can begin to do is ask ourselves these questions, like whether or not, is this thing that I feel so passionately about, is it hurting the relationships that I am in? Is it hurting my ability to be a witness to God? One of the things I really wish that Christians would do, I know, I'll try to get off this social media bandwagon, but I really wish before we posted anything or liked anything that we could ask whether or not will this be a good witness to Jesus Christ? Will this draw people to Jesus or away from them? And as I've said before, if you get into an argument and at some point, and I have to tell you, I have done this more times than I would like. If at some point what you are more concerned about is winning the argument than you are about the person with whom you are arguing, then you should probably just stop. Never love winning an argument more than you love the person with whom you are arguing. Paul says these things distract us from the beauty of life that is really life, from the gospel, from the good news. And then Paul goes on to say, well, not only that, he says, but you also have to be mindful of those people who are always causing dissension. N.T. Wright points out that this is something that we in the Western church are not very keen on. But what he says basically is, if you have somebody who is always causing problem and you have admonished them once and you have admonished them twice, then they need to go. Because they are not helping to cultivate life that really is life. I like what Ben Witherington says. He says, people like that, they don't build up the body of Christ. Rather, they puff up the individual who is involved. So Paul here is trying to say, look, none of those things, none of those things are as important as you living out this gospel life. Paul spends so much time worried about the distractions that take people away from this gospel-centered life. And one of the things that it reveals to us, it seems to me, Paul's concern about this, his continual conversations about it, is that he knows how easily the gospel can get lost. He knows how easily the most important message that the church has can get lost because of whomever it is that is leading our government or because of some small conflict that you think is the most important thing in the world or because of the fact that you're not willing to get rid of somebody who is always causing dissension and is disrupting and is causing problem. And so Paul says, no, 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 we've got to protect this because the gospel is easily tainted. It is easily used for our own means. It is easily watered down. He says we cannot do that. We have got to protect this good news, which begs the question, what is it that Paul is wanting us to protect? What is it that Paul is so concerned about that we don't get distracted from so easily? Nestled here, right in the middle of this passage, is this beautiful message of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's so important that I want to reread it. I'll read it this time in the message rather than in the NRSV. It's verses 3 through 8. Just listen to these words. It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn. Easy marks for sin. 
ordered every which way by our glands, going around with a chip on our shoulder, hated and hating back. But when God, our kind and loving Savior God, stepped in, he saved us from all that. It was all his doing. We had nothing to do with it. Our Savior Jesus poured out new life so generously. God's gift has restored our relationship with him and given us back our lives. And there's more life to come, an eternity of life. You can count on this. This is the gospel that Paul is so concerned is not distracted from or distorted or tainted or used for our own private means or our own private desires. There is this gospel that says what people have to know, what nothing can get in the way of is people knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are loved by God. And that message is so critical, is so important, then it far outweighs whoever is in the government. It far outweighs quarrels you may have. It far outweighs any particular person who is bringing dissension. That people have to know, that you have to know, that you and that they are loved by God. Now that is an important message but let me also say what I think makes this message such a gift because this is so counter to the rest of our world, which is that this gift of love from the Almighty is not a gift that is given to us once we have gotten everything in order. It's not given to us once we've made everything right. No, no, no. What does Paul say? Paul says, remember how we were full of malice and envy. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. As he says in Ephesians, even when we were dead in our sin, even then Christ died for us. Here's what he's saying, is that in the very middle of your brokenness, in the very middle of your weakness, in the midst of, of your insecurities, of our mistakes, our petulance, our jealousies, our feelings of inferiority, our impatience, our pride, our yelling at our children, our children disobeying us, our ego, our anger, our, 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 our coveting, in the midst of all of our dark thoughts, in the midst of every sin that we can ever imagine, in the very midst of that, what you need to know is that Jesus walks right there in the middle of it. He's not going like this. He's not looking past it. He's looking right through it. And when he looks right through whatever that sin or brokenness or malice or content or jealousy or covetousness, whatever it may be, he sees you. And he says, I love you. I think that is a gift. I like how William Loder says it. He says it just like this. He says, we survive not because of the credit we have built up within ourselves 
or with God on the basis of achievements, but because we have come to own for ourselves what we affirm as God's attitude toward us. And then listen to this. That is an attitude of compassion and embrace, not a mindless or uncritical acceptance which wants to look away from our weaknesses or even our sin, but a boots and all love which uphold us and assert our worth and, listen to this, never writes us off. Never writes us off. One of the things that fascinates me is that with some frequency, people will say, you know, I don't want to go to church because when I go to church, it just makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel guilty about what I've done. It makes me feel guilty about what I haven't done. And I get that. The church hasn't always dealt with that perfectly. I know I have not always dealt with sin perfectly. I get all of that. But you see, what I think is that actually this should be the place of all places where you come in and you absolutely bring those things. Here's, here's what happens. Whether we talk about it or not, all of us, when we lay our head down at night, we are flooded by the reality that we know our own brokenness and sin. Actually, it's not a gift to just not talk about it. It's not a gift to just kind of live. That's how you live sub-life. That's how you live pseudo-life is by just acting like it's all fine when it's actually not. Acting like you've got it all together when you clearly do not. Here is the gift. The gift is being able to bring it in and hold it up, not as a source of pride, but as a sense of saying, well, I don't know. It's what it says. Whatever I lift up, that you are willing to forgive and to love me and you will never write me off. That actually the church should be the place, yes, that talks about sin. Why not? It's there. You have it. I have it. But it's the place where you can bring it up as a gift to say, here. I was struck by something that uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said. He, uh, he's passed away now, but he was the, uh, uh, the rabbi for, uh, for UK. He was the chief rabbi. Here's what he says. He says, Western democracies are moving from guilt-based to shame-based societies, and that guilt at least holds out the potential for reconciliation after repentance and forgiveness. But shame-based culture rejects the person, not just their behavior, and has no path toward reconciliation or redemptive outcome. See, we believe it's actually a gift to be able to say, absolutely, I've messed this up and I can bring it up. Because as Eugene Peterson says, only then when you have done that, then you can move forward into life that is really life. As long as we just act like it's not there or as long as we just live in our own shame, we will never be able to experience the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. But it's within a setting like this where we can go and we can know that the Lord will never write us off. It is in the midst of when you are with the God who says, whatever you bring up, I am going to love you and embrace you in the midst of that. Several years ago, I may have shared with you all uh, for about the first date that my wife Megan and I went on. It was uh, about 16 years ago or so, and we went to this place called the Blue Koi in Kansas City. It's not really that important, but you can look it up. I don't even know if it's still there, but there we were, and it was our very first date, and I was 31 years old. Now, I realize it's not that old now, but back then that felt like it was old. I thought, man, this ship has sailed almost. I may just go my life. That's fine. If I have to be single, that's fine. But, but I wasn't in the mood to play around. You know, at 31, you got to figure this stuff out quick. 
So, I mean, I went into this day just thinking, well, I'm going to find out here pretty quick, like, whether or not this is going to be somebody that has some potential or not, you know, because if not, then, you know what, then we just got to move on. We got to, you know, see who's next. And so that's kind of what my mentality, I'm not saying it was a good mentality, but that was my mentality nonetheless. And so uh, it wasn't too long into uh, our having sat down and talking that I said, you know, I'm just going to throw this out there. So I said, hey, you know, uh, you should know that I have uh, $70,000 worth of student loans. Now, I'm going to be making 45 pretty soon here, so I'll pay that off in at least 15 years, but you should know that because I wanted to see. When I tossed that out, what does she do? Is she like, woo? Can I kind of tell? Does she flinch? So she looked at me and she said, all right, I've got $30,000 worth of student loans. <laughs> and I thought, well, we're already, six, we're already six figures down and we haven't even gotten our entree yet. This, <laughs> it's a match made in dead heaven, Right? But it was funny because then we kind of just kept talking, right? And, 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 and it kind of broke things loose where we, uh, where we just began to kind of talk through, well, here's something else I got, you know, just to see what happens. And, well, here's another place I'm not that good at. And here's, you know, and again, I would not recommend this as a first date. This is not what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but as we kept talking, it was clear that neither of us were running. And while I didn't know for sure that this was going to go long term as it has, I at least knew, well, we're at least going to get to a second date, it feels like. And, and one of the things that I've noticed, of course, and, and if you've been married very long, you, you kind of begin to see this, of course, is that the longer you're married, just the more things come out, really. The more those kind of brokenness, the more the sin, all those sorts of things. But one of the things that is an incredible gift to me is that I know at this point that I come and I bring these things to Megan and I'm honest about them with Megan. And here's the thing, at the end of these conversations, and sometimes it's not easy conversations and sometimes it's up and down, at the end of the conversation, she embraces me. There is a freedom and a deep joy that comes from knowing I can offer up this stuff that I would rather nobody see and she can still look at me and say I love you and embrace me this of course in our marriage is imperfect and all those things but even that as beautiful as it is for me pales in comparison to the love that God has for you. And no matter what it is that you may have to offer up, that God will never write you off. But this is not easy for us to really believe. I was thinking about this with the great banquet that we have going on right now and first time and uh, 20 months that we've had it. And, you know, I think I've said before, sometimes people, when they, they, they can get annoying when they want you to go to Great Banquet. And they just keep at it, and they keep at it. And I talk to people like, oh, I'm so tired of them talking about this. But here's, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to know. The next time you get annoyed by that, the next time you see that person calling, you're like, no, I'm not answering, or what have you. Just know this. That the reason why they are relentless belies the reality that they experienced the love and the grace of Jesus Christ that weekend, and it changed their life. Because when you have experienced that kind of love that allows you to offer up anything and know that it will be forgiven and know that you will be embraced, 
it will change you to the point that you cannot stop talking about it. But I also think that a part of the reason why Jesus gave us these sacraments is because of the fact that he knew that it would not be enough to just hear it. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things. When we do baptism and we come down here or we go up there, I should say, and we have this water. See, one of the things is when it comes to baptism, this isn't me just telling you that you're loved by God or telling someone. It is you being able to, to feel the water. It is you being able to touch the water. It's you being able to, as you can maybe now, even hear the water. For those who get it, they can even taste the water because it kind of gums down right their mouths and they can taste that water. And it is this full body experience. As I oftentimes say, I like putting as much water in there as possible because it is a sign of grace. And the reality is that all of us need, you don't need just a drop. Most of us don't need just a few drops of grace. Amen? We should probably just pour the whole thing over you. But it allows you to feel that. To know, to feel it all over you. And so at the end of this service, I'm not gonna, we're not going to force anyone to do this, but at the very end of the service, uh, if you want to come down after the benediction, um, um, I and Pastor Scott, well, uh, this is not a rebaptism. That's not what this is, but it is a sign of, we just want to put some water on your forehead and we just want to put the sign of the cross on you and just remind you that you are forgiven and that God loves you. Of course, it's also the reason why we regularly have this bread and drink of this cup. You see, Jesus did not want us just to kind of try to think about grace. He wanted, I just love this image, he wanted us to ingest it. Because then, see, the thing is, then it goes throughout all of your body, which means there is not one part of you that is untouched by the grace of God. Not one part. All of you. When you drink of this cup, when you eat of this bread, all of you are saying this is a sign of the amazing grace of God. Paul says don't let anything distract you from that incredible truth that you are loved by Jesus Christ. Breathe it. Know that it is true. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. And amen.